0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk The Adventures of Ulysses by Charles Lamb Chapter 1 This history tells of the wanderings of Ulysses and his followers in their return from Troy, after the destruction of that famous city of Asia by the Grecians. He was inflamed with the desire of seeing again, after ten years' absence, his wife and native country, Ithaca. He was king of a barren spot and a poor country in comparison of the fruitful plains of Asia which he was leaving, or the wealthy kingdoms which he touched upon his return. Yet, wherever he came, he could never see a soil which appeared in his eyes half so sweet or desirable as his country earth. This made him refuse the offers of the goddess Calypso to stay with her and partake of her immortality in the delightful island and this gave him the strength to break from the enchantments of circe the daughter of the sun from troy ill winds cast ulysses and his fleet upon the coast of the sycons a people hostile to the grecians landing his forces he laid siege to their chief city Ismarus, which he took and with it much spoil and slew many people but success proved fatal to him for his soldiers elated with the spoil, and the good store of provisions which they found in that place, fell to eating and drinking, forgetful of their safety, till the Sycons, who inhabited the coast, had time to assemble their friends and allies from the interior, who, mustering in prodigious force, set upon the Grecians, while they negligently revelled and feasted, and slew many of them, and recovered the spoil. They, Dispirited and thinned in their numbers, with difficulty made their retreat good to the ships. Thence they set sail, sad at heart, yet something cheered that with such fearful odds against them, they had not all been utterly destroyed. A dreadful tempest ensued, which for two nights and two days tossed them about, but the third day the weather cleared, and they had hopes of a favourable gale to carry them to Ithaca. But, as they doubled the Cape of Malia, suddenly a north wind arising drove them back as far as Cythera. After that, for the space of nine days, contrary winds continued to drive them in an opposite direction to the point to which they were bound, and the tenth day they put in at a shore where a race of men dwell that are sustained by the fruit of the lotus tree. Here Ulysses sent some of his men to land for fresh water, who were met by certain of the inhabitants, that gave them some of their country food to eat, not with any ill intention toward them, though in the event it proved pernicious. For having eaten of this fruit, so pleasant it proved to their appetite, that they in a minute quite forgot all thoughts of home, or of their countrymen or of ever returning back to the ships to give an account of what sort of inhabitants dwelt there. But they would needs stay and live among them and eat of that precious food for ever. And when Ulysses sent other of his men to look for them and to bring them back by force, they strove and wept and would not leave their food for heaven itself, so much the pleasure of that enchanting fruit had bewitched them. But Ulysses caused them to be bound hand and foot, and cast under the hatches, and set sail with all possible speed from that baneful coast, lest others after them might taste the lotus, which had such strange qualities to make men forget their native country and the thoughts of home. Coasting on all that night by unknown and out-of-the-way shores, They came by daybreak to the land where the cyclops dwell, a sort of giant shepherds that neither sow nor plough, but the earth untilled produces for them rich wheat and barley and grapes, yet they have neither bread nor wine, nor know the arts of cultivation, nor care to know them, for they live each man to himself, without law or government, or anything like a state or kingdom. But their dwellings are in caves on the steep heads of mountains. Every man's household governed by his own caprice, or not governed at all. Their wives and children are lawless as themselves, none caring for others, but each doing as he or she thinks good. Ships or boats they have none, nor artificers to make them, no trade or commerce, or wish to visit other shores yet they have convenient places for harbours and for shipping. Here Ulysses, with a chosen party of twelve followers, landed, to explore what sort of men dwelt there, whether hospitable and friendly to strangers, or altogether wild and savage, for as yet no dwellers appeared in sight. The first sign of habitation which they came to was a giant's cave rudely fashioned, but of a size which betokened the vast proportions of its owner. The pillars which supported it being the bodies of huge oaks or pines, in the natural state of the trees, and all about showed more marks of strength than skill in whoever built it. Ulysses, entering it, admired the savage contrivances and artless structures of the place, and longed to see the tenant of so outlandish a mansion but well conjecturing that gifts would have more avail in extracting courtesy than strength would succeed in forcing it from such a one as he expected to find the inhabitant, he resolved to flatter his hospitality with a present of Greek wine, of which he had store in twelve great vessels, so strong that no one ever drank it without an infusion of twenty parts of water to one of wine. Yet the fragrance of it, even then, so delicious that it would have vexed a man who smelled it to abstain from tasting it, but whoever tasted it, it was able to raise his courage to the height of heroic deeds. Taking with them a goatskin flagonful of this precious liquor, they ventured into the recesses of the cave. Here they pleased themselves a whole day with beholding the giant's kitchen where the flesh of sheep and goats lay strewed, his dairy, where goat milk stood ranged in troughs and pails, his pens, where he kept his live animals, but those he had driven forth to pasture with him when he went out in the morning. While they were feasting their eyes with a sight of these curiosities, their ears were suddenly deafened with a noise like the falling of a house. It was the owner of the cave, who had been abroad all day feeding his flock as his custom was in the mountains, and now drove them home in the evening from pasture, he threw down a pile of firewood which he had been gathering against supper-time before the mouth of the cave, which occasioned the crash they heard. The grecians hid themselves in the remote parts of the cave at the sight of the uncouth monster. It was Polyphemus the largest and savagest of the cyclops, who boasted himself to be the son of Neptune. He looked more like a mountain crag than a man, and to his brutal body he had a brutish mind answerable. He drove his flock, all that gave milk, to the interior of the cave, but left the rams and the he-goats without. Then taking up a stone so massy that twenty oxen could not have drawn it, he placed it at the mouth of the cave to defend the entrance and sat him down to milk his ewes and his goats, which done, he lastly kindled a fire and throwing his great eye round the cave, for the cyclops have no more than one eye and that placed in the midst of their forehead, by the glimmering light he discerned some of Ulysses's men. Ho, guests, what are you? "'Merchants or wandering thieves?' he bellowed out in a voice which took from them all power of reply. It was so astounding. Only Ulysses summoned resolution to answer that they came neither for plunder nor traffic, but were Grecians who had lost their way, returning from Troy, which famous city, under the conduct of Agamemnon, the renowned son of Atreus, they had sacked and laid level to the ground.' yet now they prostrated themselves humbly before his feet whom they acknowledged to be mightier than they and besought him that he would bestow the rights of hospitality upon them for that jove was the avenger of wrongs done to strangers and would fiercely resent any injury which they might suffer fool said the Cyclop, to come so far to preach to me the fear of the gods We, Cyclops, care not for your Jove, whom you fable to be nursed by a goat, nor any of your blessed ones. We are stronger than they, and dare bid open battle to Jove himself, though you and all your fellows of the earth join with him. And he bade them tell him where their ship was in which they came, and whether they had any companions. But Ulysses, with wise caution, made answer that they had no ship or companions, but were unfortunate men, who the sea, splitting their ship in pieces, had dashed upon his coast, and they alone had escaped. He replied nothing, but gripping two of the nearest of them, as if they had been no more than children, he dashed their brains out against the earth, and, shocking to relate, Tore in pieces their limbs, And devoured them yet warm and trembling, Making a lion's meal of them, Lapping the blood. For the cyclops are man-eaters, And esteem human flesh to be a delicacy Far above goats or kids, Though by reason of their abhorred customs Few men approach their coast, Except some stragglers, Or now and then a shipwrecked mariner. At a sight so horrid, ulysses and his men were like distracted people he when he had made an end to his wicked supper drained a draught of goat's milk down his prodigious throat and lay down and slept among his goats then ulysses drew his sword and half resolved to thrust it with all his might in at the bosom of the sleeping monster but wiser thoughts restrained him else they had there without help all perished for none but polyphemus himself could have removed that mass of stone which he had placed to guard the entrance so they were constrained to abide all that night in fear when day came the cyclop awoke and kindling a fire made his breakfast of two other of his unfortunate prisoners then milked his goats as he was accustomed and pushing aside the vast stone and shutting it again when he had done upon the prisoners, with as much ease as a man opens and shuts a quiver's lid, he let out his flock, and drove them before him with whistlings, as sharp as winds in storm, to the mountains. Then Ulysses, of whose strength and cunning the cyclops seems to have had as little heed as of an infant's, being left alone, with the remnant of his men which the cyclop had not devoured, gave manifest proof how far manly wisdom excels brutish force. He chose a stake from among the wood which the cyclop had piled up for firing, in length and thickness like a mast, which he sharpened and hardened in the fire, and selected four men, and instructed them what they should do with this stake, and made them perfect in their parts. When the evening was come, the cyclop drove home his sheep, and as fortune directed it, either of purpose or that his memory was overruled by the gods to his hurt, as in the issue it proved, he drove the males of his flock, contrary to his custom, along with the dams into the pens. Then shutting to the stone of the cave, he fell to his horrible supper. When he had dispatched two more of the Grecians, Ulysses waxed bold with the contemplation of his project and took a bowl of Greek wine and merrily dared the cyclop to drink. Cyclop, he said, take a bowl of wine from the hand of your guest. It may serve to digest the man's flesh that you have eaten and show what drink our ship held before it went down. All I ask in recompense, if you find it good, is to be dismissed in a whole skin. Truly you must look to have few visitors, if you observe this new custom of eating your guests. The brute took and drank, and vehemently enjoyed the taste of wine, which was new to him, and swirled again at the flagon, and entreated for more, and prayed Ulysses to tell him his name, that he might bestow a gift upon the man who had given him such brave liquor, The cyclops, he said, had grapes, but this rich juice, he swore, was simply divine. Again Ulysses plied him with the wine, and the fool drank it as fast as he poured out, and again he asked the name of his benefactor, which Ulysses, cunningly dissembling, said, My name is No Man. My kindred and friends in my own country call me No Man then said the cyclop this is the kindness i will show thee no man i will eat thee last of all thy friends he had scarce expressed his savage kindness when the fumes of the strong wine overcame him and he reeled down upon the floor and sank into a dead sleep ulysses watched his time while the monster lay insensible and heartening up his men they placed the sharp end of the stake in the fire till it was heated red hot. And some god gave them a courage beyond that which they were used to have. And the four men with difficulty bored the sharp end of the huge stake which they had heated red hot right into the eye of the drunken cannibal. And Ulysses helped to thrust it in with all his might still farther and farther with effort as men bore with an auger. Till the scalded blood gushed out, and the eyeballs smoked, and the strings of the eye cracked, as the burning rafter broke in it, and the eye hissed, as hot iron hisses when it is plunged into water. He, waking, roared with the pain so loud that all the cavern broke into claps like thunder. They fled and dispersed into corners. He plucked the burning stake from his eye and hurled the wood madly about the cave. Then he cried out with a mighty voice for his brethren, the Cyclops, that dwelt hard by in the caverns upon hills. They, hearing the terrible shout, came flocking from all parts to inquire, What ailed polyphemus? And what cause he had for making such horrid clamours in the night-time to break their sleeps? if his fright proceeded from any mortal, if strength or craft had given him his death's blow. He made answer from within that no man had hurt him, no man had killed him, no man was with him in the cave. They replied, If no man has hurt thee and no man is with thee, then thou art alone, and the evil that afflicts thee is in the hand of heaven which none can resist or help. So they left him and went their way, thinking that some disease troubled him. He, blind and ready to split with the anguish of the pain, went groaning up and down in the dark to find the doorway, which when he found, he removed the stone and sat in the threshold, feeling if he could lay hold on any man going out with the sheep, which, the day now breaking, were beginning to issue forth to their accustomed pastures. But Ulysses, whose first artifice in giving himself that ambiguous name had succeeded so well with the cyclop, was not of a wit so gross to be caught by that palpable device. But casting about in his mind all the ways which he could contrive for escape, no less than all their lives depending on the success, at last he thought of this expedient he made knots of the osier twigs upon which the cyclop commonly slept, with which he tied the fattest and the fleeciest of the rams together, three in a rank, and under the belly of the middle ram he tied a man, and himself last, wrapping himself fast with both his hands in the rich wool of one, the fairest of the flock. And now the sheep began to issue forth very fast, The males went first. The females, unmilked, stood by, bleating and requiring the hand of their shepherd in vain to milk them. Their full bags sore with being unempted, but he much sorer with the loss of sight. Still, as the males passed, he felt the backs of those fleecy fools, never dreaming that they carried his enemies under their bellies. So they passed on till the last ram came loaded with his wool and Ulysses together. He stopped that ram and felt him, and had his hand once in the hair of Ulysses, yet knew it not, and he chid the lamb for being last, and spoke to it as if it understood him, and asked it whether it did not wish that its master had his eye again, which that abominable no-man with his execrable rout had put out, when they had got him down with wine, and he willed the ram to tell him whereabouts in the cave his enemy lurked, that he might dash his brains and strew them about, to ease his heart of that tormenting revenge which rankled in it. After a deal of such foolish talk to the beast, he let it go. When Ulysses found himself free, he let go his hold, and assisted in disengaging his friends. The rams, which had befriended them, they carried off with them to the ships, where their companions with tears in their eyes received them, as men escaped from death. They plied their oars and set their sails, and when they got as far off from shore as a voice could reach, Ulysses cried out to the cyclop, Cyclop, thou shouldst not have so much abused thy monstrous strength as to devour thy guests. "'Jove, by my hand, sends thee requital to pay thy savage inhumanity.' "'The cyclop heard, and came forth enraged, "'and in his anger he plucked a fragment of a rock, "'and threw it with blind fury at the ship's. "'It narrowly escaped lighting upon the bark in which Ulysses sat, "'but with the fall it raised so fierce an ebb as bore back the ship "'till it almost touched the shore.' Cyclop, said Ulysses, if any ask thee who imposed on thee that unsightly blemish in thine eye, say it was Ulysses, son of Laertes, the king of Ithaca am I called, the waster of cities. Then they crowded sail and beat the old sea, and forth they went with a forward gale, sad for four past losses, yet glad to have escaped at any rate till they came to the isle where Aeolus reigned, who is god of the winds. Here Ulysses and his men were courteously received by the monarch, who showed him his twelve children, which have rule over the twelve winds. A month they stayed and feasted with him, and at the end of the month he dismissed them with many presents, and gave to Ulysses at parting an ox's hide, in which were enclosed... All the winds only he left abroad the western wind to play upon their sails and waft them gently home to Ithaca this bag bound in a glittering silver band so close that no breath could escape Ulysses hung up at the mast his companions did not know its contents but guessed that the monarch had given him some treasures of gold or silver nine days they sailed smoothly favoured by the western wind and by the tenth they approached so nigh as to discern lights kindled on the shores of their country earth when by ill fortune ulysses overcome with fatigue of watching the helm fell asleep the mariners seized the opportunity and one of them said to the rest a fine time has this leader of ours whenever he goes he is sure of presents when he come away empty-handed and see what kin aeolus has given him store no doubt of gold and silver a word was enough to those covetous wretches who quick as thought untied the bag and instead of gold out rushed the mighty noise all the winds ulysses with the noise awoke and saw their mistake but too late, for the ship was driven with all the winds back far from Ithaca, far as to the island of Aeolus from which they had parted, in one hour measuring back what in nine days they had scarcely tracked, and in sight of home too. Up he flew amazed and raving, doubted whether he should not fling himself into the sea for grief of his bitter disappointment. At last he hid himself upon the hatches for shame, and scarce could he be prevailed upon when he was told he was arrived again in the harbour of King Aeolus, and to go himself or send to that monarch for a second succour, so much the disgrace of having misused his royal bounty, though it was the crime of his followers and not his own, weighed upon him. And when at last he went and took a herald with him, and came where the gods sat on his throne, feasting with his children, he would not thrust in among them at their meat, but set himself down like one unworthy in the threshold. Indignation seized Aeolus to behold him in that manner returned, and he said, Ulysses, what has brought you back? Are you so tired of your country, or did not our present please you? We thought we had given you a kingly passport." "'Ulysses made answer. "'My men have done this ill mischief to me. "'They did it while I slept. "'Wretch!' said Aeolus. "'Avant, and quit our shores. "'It fits not us to convey men whom the gods hate, "'and will have perish.' Forth they sailed, but with far different hopes "'than when they had left the same harbour the first time "'with all the winds confined.' Only the west wind suffered to play upon their sails, to waft them in gentle murmurs to Ithaca. They were now the sport of every gale that blew, and despaired of ever seeing home more. Now those covetous mariners were cured of their surfeit for gold, and would not have touched it if it had lain in untold heaps before them. Six days and nights they drove along, and on the seventh day they put into Lamos, a port of the Lystragonians. So spacious this harbour was, that it held with ease all their fleet, which rode at anchor, safe from any storms, all but the ship in which Ulysses was embarked. He, as if prophetic of the mischance which followed, kept still without the harbour, making fast his bark to a rock at the land's point, which he climbed with purpose to survey the country. He saw a city with smoke ascending from the roofs, but neither ploughs going nor oxen yoked nor any sign of agricultural works. Making choice of two men, he sent them to the city to explore what sort of inhabitants dwelt there. His messengers had not gone far before they met a damsel of stature surpassing human who was coming to draw water from a spring. They asked her who dwelt in that land. She made no reply, but led them in silence to her father's palace. He was a monarch, and named Antiphas. He and all his people were giants. When they entered the palace, a woman, the mother of the damsel, but far taller than she, rushed abroad, and called for Antiphas. He came, and snatching up one of the two men, made as if he would devour him. The other fled. Antiphas raised a mighty shout, and instantly, this way and that, multitudes of gigantic people issued out of the gates, and making for the harbour, tore up huge pieces of the rocks, and flung them at the ships which lay there, all which were utterly overwhelmed and sank and the unfortunate bodies of men which floated, and which the sea did not devour, these cannibals thrust through with harpoons like fishes, and bore them off to their dire feast. Ulysses, with his single bark, that had never entered the harbour, escaped. That bark which was now the only vessel left of all the gallant navy that had set sail with him from Troy. He pushed off from the shore, cheering the sad remnant of his men, whom horror at the sight of their countrymen's fate had almost turned to marble. End of chapter 1